You're listening to Just Medicine, an equity and healthcare podcast created by medical students in British Columbia. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of Just Medicine. Today, we'll be chatting with Dr. Marcus Greathart about the art of medicine in managing substance use and mental health in rural areas. Substance use is a serious problem here in BC, with more than 2,200 British Columbians lost to toxic illicit drug supply in 2021, according to the BC Coroner's Report. In the past seven years, the rate of death due to overdose from illicit drugs has increased by more than 400%. And in terms of years of life lost, drug overdose is now second only to cancers in BC. Since the public health emergency surrounding substance use was first announced in April 2016, more than 8,800 British Columbians have been lost to drug overdoses. Between 19.6 and 26.2% of British Columbians, somewhere around 1 million people, will experience a mental illness every year. This number exponentially increases when you're looking at people with substance use disorders as well. Many of our patients with substance use and mental health disorders do not seek health care. This can be due to physical inaccessibility of getting to clinics or due to mistrust of healthcare workers and authorities in general because of past negative experiences. So as future physicians, we have to be aware of these barriers and actively work to address them. Dr. Greathart is a family physician who works primarily with patients with substance use and mental health disorders. Today, we chat about work-life balance, building rapport with patients, and he also shares some pearls for medical trainees. The resources that are mentioned throughout the talk are shared in the episode show notes. Enjoy the episode. Hello everyone and welcome to Just Medicine. My name is Shadan and today I have a very special guest with me, Dr. Marcus Greathart. Um, He is a social worker and a family physician and he is working on uh, Vancouver Island at the moment. Hi Dr. Greathart, so great to have you here. So good to be here, thank you for, for inviting me. Yeah, of course. So uh, I just want to jump right in and ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself. You've had quite the uh, career trajectory uh, in medicine and in healthcare in general. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what your practice looks like right now. Sure. So uh, as you said, I've had a bit of a um, uh, a bit of an adventure through healthcare. Uh, I worked for. Uh, almost 20 years as a community health educator and social worker. And after grad school at the age of 40, I applied to medical school and ended up uh, attending McMaster in uh, Hamilton, actually at the Niagara Regional Campus in St. Catharines. Uh, and I was the uh, graduated class of 2015 and then matched to St. Paul's Hospital program uh, where I did my family medicine training and uh, worked at Three Bridges Community Health Center, uh, one of the um, downtown primary care clinics, uh, where I continued to work for five years. Uh, until earlier this year, I moved to uh, Northern Vancouver Island, 
uh, and now I work in Campbell River. Uh, Campbell River uh, is uh, a couple hours north of Nanaimo, and there I have an addictions-based practice uh, half-time, and um, that's uh, for my clinic. I also work on the addictions consult service at Campbell River Hospital. And then uh, a couple days a week, I'm uh, part of the uh, substance use integrated team's uh, primary care outreach to homeless uh, folks living in Campbell River. That's that's fantastic. You you're so busy. You have so many things. You I I do. Uh, within all of that, I still, for my own mental health and well-being, uh, I actually have most Mondays off. So uh, when I'm on call for the hospital, I necessarily work on Mondays. So uh, it's sort of my extra day to get caught up. But otherwise, Mondays like today. Uh, I don't have any clinical work, and so it gives me the opportunity to have wonderful conversations like this. It's so great to hear that, you know, physicians, even though they are living, fulfilling career lives, they also um, start to integrate and seeing that wave of physicians taking that time for themselves to uh, prevent burnout and just kind of for their own mental Absolutely. health, keep that up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, my husband and I uh, moved here in January with our dog. And uh, we live on a little island uh, uh, near Campbell River. And as I was saying to you, I, I start my day, but with a bike ride and a ferry trip over to Campbell River. And, uh, and that's how I end my day as well. And that's how I can decompress. And we made this decision to improve our quality of life. And so I want to enjoy our decision. And so, you know, I enjoy being at our house that needs a lot of work. And so... You know, my husband is currently putting up some fencing, and uh, when we're done, I'll be heading up into the uh, heading out to help him because the fence came down when the snow came down a couple of weeks ago, and we have to keep the deer out of the garden that we're putting in so that uh, they don't munch on all the uh, current bushes. Wow. Okay. Well, it's good to hear that your um, medical work is also integrated with some different type of work, but absolutely. Coming- yeah, coming back to what you were mentioning about. So for those who don't know, Three Bridges is a, a primary care clinic in the core of downtown uh, uh, in Vancouver and does uh primary care for one of the some of the most complicated patients um, in downtown. Uh, they have a host of uh, social issues such as substance use, mental health disorders, and they mm-hmm. uh, experience poverty, homelessness, food insecurity. So it's it's a very um, it's a very uh, I, I imagine fulfilling experience and a very po- popular elective with our fourth year students uh, mm-hmm. at UBC. Yes, yeah. uh, one of one of the most desired uh, in the lottery uh, electives. Yes, yeah. the uh, inner city medicine, uh, as we practice it, focuses on serving patients who experience poverty and homelessness, uh, living with uh, substance use disorders and uh, mental illness, and requires. Uh, a robust wraparound care, which includes physicians and nurse practitioners, social workers, nurses, and, and a very understanding uh, group of uh, admin support, um, and incredibly rewarding. Uh, the clients who come to that clinic, uh, as you say, are quite 
complex and they actually need to meet a complexity mandate. Uh, and there are a number of measures of complexity. So, but I think I think listeners can probably appreciate that uh, folks who have a number of those concurrent issues going on uh, would require more care. What that means is then that others would be excluded from care. So when folks are assessed, if someone's able to actually attend a regular medical office appointment, uh, you know, schedule it and attend it, um, uh, that's typically somebody who wouldn't be coming to our clinic. Our, our folks frequently uh, don't attend or we send outreach workers or nurses out to provide care in the community and try and bring them into the clinic to to receive the care that they need. So that actually addresses a really important point, right? So we frequently, so I was, um, I was at St. Paul's Hospital for my CTU rotation and mm-hmm. a lot of planning does go around discharge planning and ensuring adequate follow-up. But I think what Three Bridges does really well is to really target those people um, that truly can't or won't, for whatever reason, uh, seek healthcare on their own. Right. And so when we think about why patients living with uh, a history of addiction, mental illness, people of color, uh, LGBTQ plus people, uh, Indigenous Canadians, why would those patients not come to medical appointments? Uh, And I think we have to look at ourselves as care providers and think about how is it that we may have contributed to that care. Uh, I frequently say to our medical students and residents uh, when they're training with us that, that, for example, colonialism and the maltreatment of Indigenous people in Canada is woven into our white coats between uh, Indian residential schools and Indian hospitals, doctors played a role in that abusive care. Uh, That abuse, as we know, much like the abuse of residential school, has had an impact on generations of Indigenous Canadians. And different yet similar, we can see the neglect and abuse of people of color and queer and trans folks, uh, people with mental illness and addictions. Uh, There's lots of reasons why these folks, either from personal experience or stories they've heard from others, uh, would not access care. And there's research. There's uh, great research just came out last year around the delaying of care sought by transgender people in Ontario from the... um, it's called TransPulse study. And so as care providers, and you're in medical school right now, and you're learning about the pathophysiology of disease, right? And so I think when when we are diagnosing and treating, we're aware that the disease progresses, right? And we would ass- probably make the assumption that uh, patients would present early on, you know, first onset of, of a particular symptom, whether it's pain or what have you. Uh, but thinking, thinking that folks would actually delay care because maybe they can tolerate the pain, 
more than they can tolerate the even the worry, the the anxiety around potentially being mistreated in a healthcare environment is a really interesting, concerning uh, concept. Yeah, for sure. And then this reluctance to seek healthcare for, like you said, myriad of reasons, depending on what kind of minority group you're in or minority groups, if uh, if we get into the whole concept of intersectionality, um, yeah. that delaying of healthcare is going to lead to worse health outcomes because, like you said, that pathophysiology is going to progress without treatment right. and management of that condition. So right. I want to ask... And, and in, also I would yeah. add to that, right, that, that delay in care, not just worse outcomes for that person, but um, use of greater resources, right? More likely to need to need admission to hospital, more more workup, uh, um, uh, and um, utilization of more you know professional care, uh, and greater cost to the healthcare system. Yeah, and also just more likely to get hospitalized and have to have a longer stay, which then uh, introduces yeah. them to a whole slew of kind of uh, hospital-acquired infections. Um, you know, mental Absolutely. health uh, definitely gets affected when people are in the hospital for a long time, disruption to their mm -hmm. daily life. Um, so things kind of perpetuate continually if we don't stop somewhere and think, okay, what's going on at the root of the problem. And I want to talk about that. Um, so you were mentioning, you know, you work with a lot of underserved and marginalized groups from different walks of life. What is your kind of approach and like, I guess, philosophy in understanding that, yes, as a healthcare provider and as a physician in, in a position of power, you have that position of power and you kind you are a part of this in infrastructure and system that previously and still uh, contributes to uh, violence in, uh, in in healthcare and up and kind of upholding our systemic injustices. How mm -hmm. do you go about reconciling that with our role as healthcare providers and, and mm -hmm. caring for your patients? Right. So I recognize that that mistreatment of, of marginalized communities is perpetuated by our professions. But also, I have to assume that at times I've contributed that to myself, right? That I have dead named a, a, a trans person, even, even, even by accident. Uh, that I have, in whatever way, contributed individually to harm of patient by my actions, by my words, I also have to assume that, like, I, I'm an older white male physician, right? As you say, I have a lot of power, right? That I represent uh, a lot of the authority figures and and people who take power from uh, our marginalized communities. So I recognize that I'm already being perceived in a place of power and as somebody who could could or has perpetuated harm. Unintentionally, I would never obviously intentionally do that. Uh, but even in ways that I wouldn't know. So uh, I feel like I, I need to always approach any interaction from a place of being humble, uh, of recognizing uh, recognizing that even uh, that I might attempt to reduce or, or adjust the power differential, but in many ways I actually can't. I'm the one who holds the letters after my name that have significance and garner respect. Uh, 
uh, I'm the one who has the power of the pen to write the prescription. So I try to meet folks really where they're at and identify, uh, help to identify what their needs and concerns are and see what I can do to provide care. I think it's important to align myself with patients and to clarify what their concerns are. And when working with my patients, uh, I find that I need to align myself with my patients to help get their needs met. So um, in our, um, among our patients who are experiencing homelessness, frequently access to services is difficult, right? Um, somebody might want a particular kind of imaging, that sort of thing. So uh, uh, they might want an adjustment to their uh, methadone uh, or other opioid treatments. Uh, and we know that we're operating with particular guidelines. Uh, we're operating under the restrictions from, say, uh, we operate with guidelines, say, from the BC Center on Substance Use in terms of how frequently and how much we can increase methadone, right? I can't start you on 100 milligrams of methadone if you haven't been on it before. Uh, we have to start you at a lower dose and, and taper. Um, I can't order an MRI for this until we get an X-ray. Right, those are things, and so I find it helpful if I if I work to align myself, be beside my patient, and walk walk beside them. And I, I know that sounds like a a bit. Um, I think we use the term walk alongside and uh, our patients. And how I interpret that is to say, um, it's you and me, right? I bo we both want to get to a place where your pain is relieved, where we figure out what's happening with your stomach troubles where we understand your migraines. And uh, I'm here to help do that, but I'm also constrained by our healthcare system, which we know is imperfect, right? Yeah. I also tell, I tell trainees, uh, sorry, I tell uh, patients, uh, they are the captain and I am the navigator and the safety officer. And so that means that I'm sort of directing us in the ways that we can help to get their needs met or understand what's what process is happening for them uh, and to guide them in terms of safe choices or safer choices than they might be making right now. Right. So kind of re restructuring the traditional doctor-patient relationship of paternalism where, you know, it's whatever the doctor says to empower the patients to be the captain of the ship and kind of take ownership of their health while right. uh, kind of you, while you being the having the medical knowledge and knowledge of how our healthcare system works, kind of navigating through the the journey of whatever their health concerns are, right. And so, for trainees like yourself, and for residents, I think uh, what uh, what I think is important is that you know I need to know the guidelines almost uh, you know better. Because I need to know how to maneuver through the guidelines and understand understand what we are and are not doing. So, I think the that that relates to another important point. I was recently at the the International Street Medicine Conference in Toronto in September of uh, this year, twenty twenty two, and uh, one of the speakers spoke about the importance of primary care for our uh, our patients experiencing homelessness. And how I'm mobilizing that 
is to say, you know, we're frequently going uh, going out on outreach and meeting folks at some of the encampments or or uh, around the overdose prevention sites in our community, and and folks will frequently come to us with a particular concern or issue. What I'm attempting to do is to not just focus on that issue, but to look at that, look at the whole person. So if this client is coming and asking for a restart of their methadone, or they've, you know, uh, injured themselves, burned themselves, uh, uh, and they need treatment of that, I'm also looking at this uh, patient. And, you know, if she's a woman in her 50s, then I'm at, then I'm thinking and inquiring about when did we do diabetes screening? When did we last check lipids? Let's get a blood pressure. Uh, is she up to date on other preventions? Has she had a fit test? Has she had a mammogram? Um, uh, what about a pap, right? Um, so that we don't just focus on, that we want to give primacy to that issue and concern because we're wanting to build rapport and engagement. But I'm also thinking about the other uh, common preventions and and issues of family medicine. So I, I will often say to my patients, just because you're living with a substance use disorder or living with mental illness doesn't excuse you from the other preventions, right? It, when, when, you know, uh, people who are sexually active get sexual health screening, people of a certain age get different kinds of screening and when it's appropriate. And so for me, that's that's a, a measure of ensuring that we're providing balanced care. And, you know, we're not just treating the opioid use disorder, right? We're treating and trying to treat the whole person. And that might not be the primary uh, motivation, or it might be not be on the agenda of that person in the moment, but I still want us to be thinking about it and inquiring about it and saying, okay, so you haven't had a mammogram in, um, you know, uh, at all, and you're 55 years old, when the time comes and you would like to have one, then, you know, let us know and we can work with our outreach team to help get you up to the hospital to get one done. And uh, and if it's okay, I'll check in with you about that every once in a while. Okay. That's actually so helpful because I think when we think about, you know, marginalized groups or underserved groups who specifically have, you know, substance use disorders or mental health disorders, we kind of forget about, like you said, we we focus on the primary presenting issue, which is also what they want to focus on, like they want to uptitrate their methadone or uh, try a different uh, psychiatric medication. But it's important to have that comprehensive care for, again, thinking about health equity and health outcomes. A lot of people who are marginalized aren't seeking care regularly to get those screening programs and screening mm -hmm. uh, tests done. So I really like that method of, I know that this isn't your primary concern right now, but it is something that I would do for any patient. And whenever you're ready, let's talk about it. And the, the, the frequent follow-up from your end, um, not kind of hounding, hounding them about it, but just keeping it in the, uh, on the list of things that need to be done is, is such a great way to incorporate holistic care. Right. And I'm a family doctor, so I need to do the things that family doctors do. And family doctors attend to the concerns of our patients. And we also um, 
as a family doctor, I want to attend to the, the immediate concerns of my patients. And I'm all, I also have a responsibility of, of monitoring and uh, uh, monitoring for uh, the you know, disease prevention that we do. Right. So you've worked um, at both a big clinic in down core of the downtown of Vancouver, and now you're working in a rural setting with mm-hmm. different and maybe more limited resources. Can you speak a little bit about um, how does it how does your practice differ? Because you're still kind of working in with the sim- with similar populations, but how has it differed now that you're in a different setting? Uh, great question. Um, when I left Vancouver, not just for this opportunity, I did also feel like I wanted to spread my wings. I felt I had learned an awful lot working in downtown Vancouver, inner city medicine, uh, at St. Paul's Hospital. Uh, and I really wanted to take that learning from uh, it to a smaller community. I was fortunate to be connected actually through one of my residency uh, uh, mates, um, Dr. Laura McKinnon uh, connected me with the team up in Campbell River, and I ended up stepping into a, um, a locum uh, position for one of the addictions doctors there, uh, which provided this opportunity for me to find my bearings and get to know the community. What's different for me is I uh, work in a very busy primarily addictions clinic um, where we have uh, primary care attachment with our nurse practitioners and the physicians are doing addictions focused care, which means I'm providing a lot of OAT, uh, opiate agonist therapy. Uh, And starting very soon, uh, in the next few weeks, we're gonna be starting uh, a safe supply uh, program uh, with fentanyl patch. Uh, and perhaps expanding next year uh, with a, a funding program through AVI, which is very exciting. Um, so rather than having, uh, uh, as you will, when you're at Three Bridges, um, you know, longer up to 30 minute appointments with patients uh, to be able to provide that robust care, I'm provide I'm writing a lot of prescriptions because we have a huge need and very and limited physician capacity. Uh, so my clinic is basically two days a week, a drop in uh, for our patients to come in to uh, provide them with their prescriptions uh, and adjust doses, that sort of thing. And I'm doing what primary care I can in between. Uh, it's uh, it can be a bit uh, chaotic at times uh, and uh, very busy and very slow depending on the time of day and the day of the month uh, and and it's rewarding in its own way uh, it can be stressful and yet I recognize uh, there's such a huge number of folks who need opiate agonist therapy uh, that in the times where I feel like I'm it's a little bit of a at times, I feel like it's a bit of a Ferris wheel of, of uh, no, sorry. At times, I feel like it's a bit of a conveyor belt of patients coming through for prescriptions. Uh, but again, I reflect that it's Im- important that people get their prescriptions from a provider that they trust and know. And uh, I think 
my patients appreciate my approach and they, uh, uh, I think we've built rapport even over the short time that I've been there and I've seen some wonderful uh, improvements and, and patients achieving their goals. Uh, different in this clinic as I'm uh, sort of clinically specific uh, is that we're using a lot more sublocade. Uh, sublocade is the injectable version of buprenorphine, uh, which is, um, uh, subo- folks are gonna, might be uh, familiar with Suboxone, which is the uh, sublingual uh, tablet treatment for uh, opiate agonist therapy. And so I have quite a few patients now that we've converted over to Suboxone and onto Sublocade. Uh, so that's been very exciting, and that is life-changing for folks. Uh, we do have some access to uh, through our addiction service at the hospital. To we've had some folks who, were, while they were admitted to hospital, we were also able to uh, convert them uh, over to Suboxone and Sublocade, uh, and so that's been that's been great and very hands-on. The other part of the outreach work, I mean, I, ha- I hadn't done outreach work before. So now two days a week, I'm out in the community with our uh, team of nurses and social workers and uh, Indigenous uh, patient uh, navigators to find folks where they're at. And uh, that's been in- incredibly w- rewarding. I would say some of the most rewarding work that I've been doing uh, is to provide some wound care uh, at somebody's tent uh, to hear folks say, wow, we never thought a doctor would come out and see us here and provide care here in you know, a backwooded area near, near a park where our homeless folks are, have, have set up a camp um, in, and are living in tension with the community and with city hall. That's, that's, that's pretty, uh, extraordinary work to be doing. And I'm so blessed to be working with a great team of nurses and you know our, our outreach team there who are jumping in there uh, and doing some advanced wound care and addiction support and mental health assessments. We're uh, more recently doing some palliative care for homeless folks. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing uh, and, and life-changing. And I come home at the end of the day and and I, uh, you know, my husband sees how, yeah, how nurtured my soul is by this work, which is incredibly complex. Uh, you know, I, I think about the gifts of my training, right? I'm a social worker and a doctor and that like Venn diagram. I always say that Venn diagram is like the, it's like the, um, the unicorn horn. And, uh, that's in part what, uh, enables me to do this work. And uh, yeah, it it fills my heart. That's so fantastic. I didn't know about this outreach program. And it's such a kind of great initiative, again, thinking about the barriers of why people don't access healthcare. Mm it's you're targeting the 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 root um as as i as i always say um of okay they they physically can't get to the clinic so we will go out to them and it's just so um such a great example of the way we can come up with initiatives that um 
target the the specific cause of uh, and barrier that that we're facing or the this this group is facing and that's why i think it's so important for us as uh, for me as a medical student and then resident and a future physician to kind of start creating that awareness for myself of like what are the barriers so that then mm -hmm. i can be a part of this team that focuses to address these barriers at at their root. I want to ask you, um, as someone who's been um, practicing uh, in a smaller community, um, f focusing on addictions, what are the biggest barriers you've seen or you've heard your patients complain about in accessing uh, regular healthcare and also addictions or mental health specific health um, healthcare? Mm -hmm. Well, as we know, uh, access to primary care in Canada broadly is growing increasingly uh, difficult for the average person. Um, I uh, have a, um, a new family doctor here who I met uh, once, uh, when uh, and uh, then who then went on maternity leave and said, you know, my colleagues are covering. And, you know, but anticipate it's going to be four to six weeks before you can get an appointment to see somebody, uh, you know, and I'll see you in a year. Uh, that's the reality for many of us, right? Um, I'm hearing colleagues saying, you know, we're, who work in healthcare, uh, one recently said that they were fired by their doctor because they hadn't been seen in a couple of years. And she said, she said, I've just, I've been healthy. I haven't needed to go to the doctor. So, uh, Many folks, uh, doctors have stopped practicing, retiring, switching, right? So so a lot of what we hear, we're hearing about in the news right now in BC and elsewhere around uh, finding a family doctor uh, is the reality uh, uh, for, for all of us, because we're all patients, right? Um, but even more so for folks who are experiencing mental illness, addiction, uh, homelessness and poverty. Uh, our patients are struggling to get to our clinic because they don't have transportation. Um, our folks uh, lose their bus passes or don't get their bus passes or they don't have the ID that they need. You know, we, we had a, a client recently needed to get a birth certificate from another province and that took three, four months to get a birth certificate. Uh, and and it was so complicated. Uh, and, you know, between myself and our social worker and the client, like, I, I can't even tell you how much work that took to do so that we could get them, get them onto a medical services plan here. Uh, and, you know, we begged for extensions, you know, we, uh, in order to have some like of the temporary coverage. So, our clients don't have frequently don't have a lot of skills or access to be able to do that kind of self advocacy. There are specialists uh, here and and in Vancouver who basically require an email address in order to be able to communicate with with patients. And many of our folks don't have a phone. They don't have a computer. They don't have an email access or or the the technical knowledge to be able to do that. We 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 do ourselves a disservice when we assume that everybody's able to do that. And maybe that does help with some clinics, but you also need to be able to uh, find other ways to communicate with with clients. So 
we, you know, we do things differently. I send a referral and I say this patient is followed by the, uh, by our suit team, the outreach team. Uh, please send appointment details to the case manager. Uh, the case manager will uh, uh, will ensure that we outreach to that client and that we transport and bring them to the appointment. And if needed, we'll even sit, you know, we'll even sort of sit and chaperone uh, that appointment if the patient would struggle to wait in a waiting room or want an advocate to come into the appointment. I, I think that gives you a bit of a sense of of some of the many barriers. I would say I'm spending much of my care for patients thinking about how do we do this in their life circumstance. So, you know, you will write plenty of prescriptions for antibiotics that, um, you know, for infections that are required four times a day. Well, our patients can't take meds four times a day frequently. Some can. Uh, So I'm frequently thinking about, like, how can I adjust this prescription Maybe it's not ideal. Is there another antibiotic that I could choose that's once a day? Uh, so cefadroxyl is one of my uh, one of our new favorite uh, antibiotics, not carried by all the pharmacies, but I've called the pharmacies that I typically work with and asked them to stock it uh, because it's a once a day that can be used in uh, uh, in certain situations. Uh, yeah, are, are there different ways that I can treat a particular condition that are going to align, in particular? For folks who are on, uh, who are visiting the pharmacy daily for their uh, OAT, that I can tack a medication on there. Uh, or I'm uh, recently I, I had uh, a patient who was concerned about uh, sexually transmitted infection, and it seemed like it. And I said, if if I need to make an adjustment to this, I will communicate that to you through the pharmacist, and got consent. And so we. I ended up having to make an adjustment to the um, to the antibiotics, and that's how we figured that out. So I'm I'm constantly thinking about and talking to my patients about how do we what are the potential barriers, what are the things that are going to potentially happen that might get in the way of a successful treatment or management of this condition, and and then trying to problem solve that. And calling community partners and you know, knowing who I can rely on and you know who, who can advocate for this person or who's, who can give them a lift. It's really the art of medicine, what I'm kind of hearing you describe. It's to apply the medical principle of an infection needs an antibiotic, but also to apply it to this individualized patient context of, okay, this person is not going to be able to take uh, four uh, medications uh, or four pills a day. And honestly, it's not even so much of like a specifically uh, of an like an unhoused individual or someone who has substance use or mental health. Even people without any of those conditions won't take four, uh, medications four times a day, mm-hmm. right? So it's just having that kind of knowledge and awareness of uh, that how does how do I make this easier for my patients to improve their outcomes and then apply that to a patient-specific scenario? And like you said, uh, applying the earlier principle you mentioned of walking alongside with the patient, asking them, okay, what are the barriers for you to get this treatment done to for you to feel better? And working together and with other allied health professionals and people in the community, I think it's such a great example of how 
what your approach is. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Mm, thanks. Um, I want to ask you, what are some resources, whether it be um, articles or textbooks or uh, papers, anything that you can think of for medical students and residents who are interested in learning more about kind of, again, the art of medicine, not so much, you know, what are the medications and what are the doses that you would be using in, um, like, opioid agonist therapy, but what is what are the things that you would recommend people to read about and learn more about when thinking about how to work with the patients and not so much of the medicine? Right. Um, um, much has been said about trauma-informed care and what that looks like. I think trauma-informed care uh, is growing in terms of the respect it's getting within healthcare. Uh, there will always be detractors to that, but I think fundamentally that's an important component of what we do. I operate with the assumption that all of my patients have experienced some trauma and experienced uh, sort of trauma in general, whether that's um, early childhood or, you know, through their adult life, particularly, you know, if they're uh, experiencing homelessness and addiction, uh, there's a lot of uh, terrible things that happen to folks, as well as trauma within healthcare settings. So I think starting from that, that basis is, is important. Uh, I think about learning good communication skills. Uh, I think, for example, the um, from Ariadne Labs, the serious illness conversation is a wonderful tool. Uh, and it's geared towards uh, having uh, discussions with patients around what their wishes would be, their fears are, uh, who their supports are when they have a life-limiting illness. But I think that that can, that concept is expansive, right? That can be used in all sorts of situations. So those are the kinds of questions that I ask when I'm doing a new intake for, for a patient for, for starting on, you know, when they're starting on their methadone. I, you know, I want to know who, so it's, it's not just uh, like, you know, who is your family in town, but, you know, just because you have family in town doesn't mean that you're close to them. Like, who do you turn to when you need support? Those, uh, those sorts of questions really sort of drill down to help understand uh, what's going on for a person. Uh, so finding those types of communication tools like the serious illness conversation that we can we can adapt that help us be patient-centered uh, i think the challenge for medical students and residents is that the the educational institutions are needing for you to learn particular knowledge uh, and because of the way that uh, you're frequently evaluated particularly in, an, in exam settings, you kind of need to do it in that structured way, uh, which again is very useful to know, right? You need to know what the rules are, what the guidelines say, 
before you can then bend them. So uh, I don't know that the exam is the exam answer is ever going to be trauma informed care. But the question is, how can you do the role that you need to do, get the information that you need, provide the 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 care that you need, at the same time uh, uh, as as being patient centered and empathetic. Right? Uh, there's a great book called Compassionomics, uh, which talks about the value of compassion in healthcare, uh, and he really looks at the at the evidence for uh, compassion in the work that we do uh, and breaks down these myths that being more compassionate or empathetic actually costs more or wastes time, that sort of thing. Uh, and it's actually, a, I, I find it a, kind of a fascinating take on, on healthcare uh, and how we can, it seems, uh, I, I can understand it seems a bit counterintuitive to say that if I spend more time talking to my patient uh, and providing empathy and compassion, uh, that I'll actually be able to do a better job. Uh, I think what we're aiming for is to be effective and efficient. And there's lots of evidence and Compassionomics is just one of a number of, of uh, resources. Uh, there's also the Cleveland Clinic has a uh, a patient interview guide uh, called uh, uh, it's Ready, I think R E D E, uh, which focuses uh, uh, which highlights how physicians can be both effective and efficient. So uh, you'll remember from your first year communication skills course, which I've taught, uh, you know, the, the, the rule of interruption, right? That we interrupt our patients within the first, I don't know, it's, I think it started at 23 seconds. And it's actually, even though uh, there was a study that said the original time was, I think, 23 seconds. And then we all learned about it in med school, or they learned about it through the 90s and 2000s. And then they went back and reevaluated and figured out that we are actually worse at it, that we're interrupting our patients now at, at an even shorter period of time. The, uh, the benefit of allowing patients to talk longer and uninterrupted initially is actually we get to both their primary, we, we get their first issue as well as their primary issue because the the first issue is typically not the primary issue about why they came into the appointment, uh, but also we can uh, so we we can make a more effective agenda, right? So just starting with that, we're already setting ourselves up for greater success in that clinical intervention. Uh, it we're just living in tension, right? Because we're doctors and we've got people in the waiting room and the phone is ringing and we're on call. Uh, and it just feels like if we could take, if we can take control of that interaction, that we can, uh, it, it'll be more effective if we're in control. But the reality is that we give control to our patients to tell their stories, at least initially. Uh, and then we do some agenda setting around uh, um, the parameters of the appointment and what we're there to achieve and do and get our patients online. And that way we can also build trust. We build trust with our patients. They're more willing to share with us the information that might feel embarrassing or awkward to share that helps us in our diagnosis. So there's so much evidence to say that compassion, empathy, rapport, 
that that building uh, building skills and doctor patient doctor patient communication, uh, nurturing the relationship we have with the patient, even if we're just meeting them once in the ER, uh, is foundational in being more effective and efficient. That the time we spend investing in communicating better and in building rapport helps us be better doctors because we understand better what's going on and uh, and saves us time and uh, uh, time and droves, you know, uh, going forward. I think that's a really important principle to remember when, especially as medical students and residents, we do most of our training in uh, in the hospitals, which, like you said, there is, you know, you're on call, you're seeing a patient, there is another patient maybe waiting for you if it's a particularly busy night. So to take that extra, whatever it is, 30 seconds, five minutes to uh, really hone in that communication and rapport. Um, mm -hmm takes us that extra extra mile which is really good to hear from someone who's been doing this for a while and who has really good rapport with some of the most uh underserved and marginalized patient populations so i think it's a really yeah. uh, good pearl to keep in mind and speaking of pearls um uh -huh. we've had such great conversation we've really spanned huge topics so um i want to close the the conversation like we do in uh, in our lectures and first and second year and in medicine as a whole um, with some pearls that you would want to share with uh, medical students and, and residents and medical trainees in general um, as to what they should take away from this conversation and what they can try to incorporate into their practice. Well, I think uh, you don't need to get a uh, master's in social worker to be a uh, master's in social work to uh, be an effective doctor. It uh, sure helps. M more importantly, it's given me a, uh, a lens upon the work that we do. I think this idea that, you know, I go back to the SOAP note, right? The subjective objective uh, assessment and plan, right? This uh, objective I think this idea of objectivity is actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, false, right? Um, you know, a, a blood pressure is not just a blood pressure. It has to be seen in context, right? And that context is processed through our brains, right? Um, so I, I think we, uh, what's important is that we consider our, the clinical lens that we bring, uh, sorry, the critical lens that we bring to our clinical work the, the critical lens that we bring to our work, when we are aware of that, uh, helps us to identify some of these uh, social issues, uh, some of these, uh, some of the psychosocial issues that that interact with our patients' ability to share their stories, to uh, participate in a treatment plan, to follow through with uh, taking their medications. I think it means we need to, so the pearl in that is uh, self-awareness and self-reflection. What, what do I believe? Do I believe in, in harm reduction? Uh, do I believe in patient autonomy? Uh, do I, uh, I often say to uh, colleagues and uh, trainees alike, uh, patients are allowed to make choices that we would consider unwise, right? We can't force patients to to do things that 
they don't want to do, unless they're certified under the Mental Health Act, right? In which case we can give them psychiatric medications, right? We can't force people to undergo medical interventions. And we might think it's unwise and we might not understand their choices, but they but they have the right to do that, much like we do, right? Their autonomy is super important. So I think having the ability to self-reflect on our investment on, I want to figure out, I need to know the the cause of this and I need to provide the treatment and it needs to be successful and this patient needs to be cured, right? Life's not that simple. So understanding that we're on a journey with our patients and we're going to get where we get. Uh, and that journey might lead to treatment and resolution. Uh, it might, uh, it will hopefully evolve some relationship. At the same time, it might lead to a worsening of a patient's health condition, and it might lead to their death. And those are all parts of the reality of the work that we do. Uh, and I'm okay with that. And I try to do that, again, by self, by reflecting for myself, uh, by setting a high bar for my clinical practice. I will, in situations, frequently think about the mentors, the people who the people who trained me, the doctors who I, whom I respect, who I still talk to frequently. And I think, uh, you know, in my family practice, I, I think of my mentor, uh, Dr. Tanya Cullum at Three Bridges, uh, who supported me and taught me so much. And so if I'm in a bit of a dilemma, I think, well, what would, what would Tanya say or do in this situation, right? You know, would she, would, would she, uh, would she support my choices, my clinical choices and decision-making here? Uh, and sometimes when I'm not sure, I'll call her. Hey, I'm, 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 I'm in a, you know, I'm in a pickle, you know, and I have other folks, right? The gift of medical school and the gift of residency is that you meet folks, mentors and colleagues who you know you can call, right? I have uh, another colleague whenever, when, if I'm in like in a bit of a, an ethical dilemma, you have your, I have like people I can call and say, I'm in this ethical dilemma and I need your blunt take on this because I'm, I'm obviously enmeshed in what's going on because I'm the care provider and, you know, there might be personality components, what have you going on. And so I think, I think it's important to, to have those people, you know, that you can, you can trust. I think in res, in, when you're training, having a team of colleagues, you can, uh, can say like, you know, it, you can call me at three o'clock in the morning when you're on call and you don't know what to do and you just need to talk something out because you have to go and present to the staff and you're going to do the same, you know, and I'll do the same for you and you're going to do that for me, right? I think that our current residents, they have sort of a WhatsApp and so it's, you know, they'll, they'll text the group and, you know, there's always somebody else awake uh, or somebody who will respond, right? That you have, that you have each other's backs. So I know that there's a, there's a group of docs out there who will answer. If I were to call at three o'clock in the morning, they would answer the phone and they would help me out just as I would do that for them. And that's about relationship too. Yeah. So, so self-reflection and finding your people. Finding your people and finding, yeah, you have the gift of, of as you're moving through residency, I think, well, at least in family medicine, your first year is, is learning family medicine and then you're fine tuning. And then I believe you're building, uh, you know, praxis. Praxis is a term from social work, but it's, it's like how you practice medicine. It's not 
which antibiotic you choose for a UTI. It's how you see family medicine and how you engage with your patients and your colleagues and do the work in your day-to-day living with integrity and, you know, holding up the bar uh, for yourself and for the trainees who are working with you. What a good note to to finish us off. Um, I just want to thank you so much again, Marcus, for coming on and chatting with us. Um, oh, my pleasure. It's It's been wonderful to just learn with you and from you um, and to just see a whole different kind of side of, again, the art of medicine. So thank you so much again for coming on and being a guest on our on our first episode here. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Just Medicine. 